1: Welcome to the New Books Network in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. And today we have Steve Wiggins to talk about demons in his new fascinating book entitled "Nightmares with Nightmares with the Bible: The Good Book and Cinematic Demons," published by Lexington Books. So we usually like to start off these interviews by uh, asking, "So how did you come to write this work?" and uh, what is your academic background? Uh,
0: those are both good questions. Um, the uh, How I came to write the work was actually, uh, I had written a book uh, called Holy Horror, uh, the Bible in cinema, uh, uh, the Bible and fear in cinema, which was uh, essentially looking at how the Bible was portrayed in horror movies. And uh, while I had, after I had just submitted that to uh, the publisher, uh, I was contacted by somebody who had started a new series uh, called Horror and Scripture with Lexington Books. And they asked if I had something to uh, to submit to them. And I said, well, I just sent my book because I knew I was working on that that previous book and I said well I've, I've already submitted it and I don't have anything at the moment they said well can you come up with something because they were really ready to uh, promote the new series and at that point I tend to work on more than one book at a time I actually had two books under uh, underway uh, neither one of them nearly finished one of them was a book about demons just a, a basic introduction to demons for lay people, because I didn't know know that there was anything out there like that. And the other was kind of a sequel to the the book Holy Horror, which was to look at uh, movies that have demons in them uh, in more detail uh, than I did in, in the previous book. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought I could bring those two books together, since they were both about halfway written, and make a book like uh, the nightmares, that, nightmare that came out in Nightmares with the Bible. Uh, my own actual background academically is I'm a scholar of the history of religions. I studied ancient religions more than anything else, um, primarily uh, pre-biblical material, uh, the mythology of ancient Syria. Um, I finished my doctorate in that in 1992, and my research was mostly in that area for many years, but I've been out of, the, uh, mainst- out of mainstream academia for quite a while now. And I had just been re- reading about these things and watching horror movies and decided, well, I wanna write a book about it. And so uh, that's, that's how it came about.
1: So before we start talking about how demons are represented in horror movies, we probably, it's probably better to start from the beginning, in particular, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, You mentioned in the book that there's not, there really is little mention of demons in the Hebrew Bible. Do you get brief references in Leviticus 16 and Isaiah 34? Uh, Why do you think this is?
0: Well, I think it's primarily because the, the world of the uh, the supernatural, as it was understood in those times, wasn't really fully formed yet. And I, I think you could make the argument that it's still not fully formed. It's, it's constantly in flux. But what we have are uh, a couple of different things going on. One is that there are explanations for where evil comes from. And over time, demons become one of those explanations. So eventually people will come to think, well, it's evil because a demon did it or a demon caused this to happen. But at the same time, we also have uh, a number of different stories that are, that become the backstory for demons that have not yet developed. So one is the story of fallen angels. Uh, That's, A story that's been around for a long time. Uh, There is some evidence that it's uh, pre-biblical in in origin, but it wasn't a really developed story, and it wasn't the backstory for demons until later in time, probably uh, closer to uh, the time of the New Testament, before we finally get any kind of coherent uh, understanding that demons are fallen angels. There are There were other sources of evil that were were available for people in in those times, such as uh, the—and this is true in Judaism even today—the idea is that it's the evil inclination uh, of humans that leads to evil rather than uh, a spiritual being like, like demons. But at the same time, there were these, uh, uh, there was a belief in these beings that were out there. They weren't necessarily evil. Uh, they were called demons in different cultures, but uh, the Bible doesn't have much reference to them. Uh, they're sort of more or less what, like what we'd call today nature spirits, uh, things like um elementals or things that are the spirits of the, the wind, the spirits of water, that sort of thing. They weren't fully-fledged gods, but they were more powerful than humans, and everybody in the ancient world seems to have believed in them. They didn't really believe that they were evil, but sometimes they could lead to disaster. So uh, a bad wind, for example, could lead to destruction, and therefore uh, it could be considered evil from a human point of view, although it really wasn't evil in any kind of intentional sense. The uh, Same is true of floods and water. So those sorts of things were there, but they later play into what becomes a demon. Uh, at the beginning, though, I think that what we have is a, a world, as I said, a divine world that's kind of in flux. Uh, so there are different kinds of divine beings or semi-divine beings, and there really isn't a, an evil sort of divine being just yet, that develops over time uh, through the influence of various religions working together. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's still not there yet. So when we hear about demons in the biblical world or in the Hebrew Bible, what we primarily have are creatures that dwell in the wilderness. They're uh, somewhere away from human habitation, and they are uh, scary, yes, but not necessarily evil. Uh, That has to take time to develop
1: and would you like to uh describe these two i think there's two of them that are described in the hebrew bible in leviticus 16 we get as a, a azelzel. and in isaiah 34 uh, we I'll get say, yeah uh, yeah in isaiah 34 we get li- yeah. lilith uh uh in the leviticus 16 one it's it's um it's because of the scapegoat ritual when the tribe sends a goat out to the wilderness. Is that correct?
0: Right, right, yeah. Azazel is, uh, even now, not something that, that biblical scholars understand very well. There are origins for what it is or what he is or what it may be. But like, uh, as, uh, as the idea was developing over time of demons— people would look back at what was in the Bible and try to fit it into a system, which is not really in the, the Hebrew Bible itself. So when they saw Azazel, uh, which is simply a, a creature, or it could be something, we don't even know that it's a creature, it, it, it simply named Azazel as if the readers knew what it was. And maybe they did. Uh, we just don't have any other explanation for it. And when the later people who were trying to systematize this were looking back at what existed in the Bible. They thought, here's another kind of demon. And so it becomes a demon over time. It's a force uh, for reckoning with sin in in Leviticus 16. So it's a day of atonement. Uh, There's a sacrifice made with two goats. One goat is sacrificed in the temple, just like you would expect. But the other goat is sent out in the wilderness for Azazel whatever Azazel is. And so over time, it was understood to be a demonic creature. And that demon uh, is later, of course, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, yet another name for the devil or Satan or Lucifer. Uh, He he keeps on growing uh, larger over time and getting more and more names. And so eventually it becomes a demon, although in the the biblical story itself, in Leviticus, we don't know that it is. A similar thing is true for the uh, the story in, in Isaiah, it's not really a story. It's a very brief prophecy. What Isaiah is talking about is the wilderness because the the wilderness is where all sorts of strange animals live. They're kind of scary. They're outside of human, regular human experience. And so these creatures that live in the wilderness, uh, among them are something called uh, Shadim or uh, hairy ones. Uh, And what are they? Well, we don't really know. Uh, they they might be demons, uh, and that's usually the way they're understood in later uh, understandings. And uh, the hairy element seems to have something to do with goats. Uh, it's a it's a term that's used for goats uh, quite often. And so, if you put that together uh, with the idea of a goat being sent out to Azazel in Leviticus, you can see where they get this kind of idea of a goat-like. Uh, Evil being that's in the wilderness that grows eventually over time, but those individual passages are so brief, both uh, Leviticus and Isaiah that we really can't say for sure that they are uh demons they are words that occur very infrequently in the Bible, and whenever that happens, biblical scholars sort of have to compare with other places to try to figure out what they are, and the best that we can do is to say these are, I I would call them proto-demons. I don't think they're really quite in the the realm of demons just yet, but those are the the references that we get in the Bible.
1: And I guess to mention the so-called king of demons, uh, Satan, he's a very... His character is not very fleshed out in the Hebrew Bible, right? You get this brief mention in, in Job, but it seems like <clears throat> Satan, the way Satan's characterized in Job is not the way we, we would think of Satan today. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that is that is definitely correct. Um, so what we have in the Bible, again, uh, there's a character called Satan in Hebrew, the Satan. And he's primarily a... Um, it's, it's primarily a, a job uh, more than a than a being. So, in the ancient world, they tended to think that gods worked in councils or groups. There weren't just one. There wasn't just one single god. And even uh, the, even the the Jews before before Judaism actually took off were not really monotheistic. They had a belief in other gods. They believed one god was superior to the other gods, but they still believed the other gods were there. And so you have in the book of Job the idea of a divine council, a group of gods who, who gather to discuss the affairs of the world, that sort of thing, uh, sort of like you get in, in classical Greek mythology. Uh, so you've got the Olympian gods there. So here's a, a council of gods that gather and one of them is called Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary. And what his job seems to be is he accuses those who are wicked uh, or who have done sin or who have done evil, and his job is simply to accuse those who've done wrong. And in the meeting that's taking place in the book of Job, God says to this Satan character, the Satan, have you considered Job? You know, my, my servant Job, he's uh, perfect in every way. And that starts off the whole um, the action of the book. But there's no indication in the book of Job that this Satan character is evil. He's simply a member of the divine council doing his job. And that's true for most of the Hebrew Bible. When we see this character mentioned, he is not an evil person or an evil being. He's simply a, a character with the job to do. He accuses people. That's what he does. And and just like nobody really likes the person who accuses them. It's just not human nature to do that. You know, as we have a negative feeling towards our our accusers. Yet at the same time, that doesn't make them evil. Uh, not in any kind of uh, ontological sense. And certainly, I don't think that's the uh, the case with Satan. There seems to be maybe one or two places in the Bible and, and, and where. The, the word Satan is actually used as a name without the definite article. So instead of the Satan, it is Satan. But even in those places, uh, it doesn't seem that he's a developed character. <laughs> What happens is by the time we get to the New Testament, we do finally have a character called Satan, who is the devil. They're equated in the New Testament. Uh, They're never equated in the Hebrew Bible. As a matter of fact, the word devil doesn't occur in the Hebrew Bible. They don't have the the word yet. Uh, So it's later on that this character develops. And of course... Once you get past the New Testament, there's a lot of interest in this character, and it develops to a high point of as of being a kind of wicked, evil character and the the source of all evil. That really comes about in the uh, in the Middle Ages more than anything else.
1: So I guess to begin this evolution of um, the devil from I mean from Satan to a title to a a demonic creature. Uh, would you place that? Would you place the exile, the the exile to Babylonia, as a pivotal point in this development?
0: It could be. Um, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. I would say the the exile was definitely a point in time when Judaism solidified its point of view about a number of different things. Uh, for one thing, monotheism seems to have developed during the exile. So the the Israelites as I said before, they believed that there were other gods. And one of the concerns they would have had with a situation like the exile is that if there's only one God and you're um, in exile, you have to come up with a way of explaining evil because the exile was was a bad thing. And so prior to that, if they had other gods, you could use those to say, well, you know, gods fighting against each other. But if they had that point of view in the exile, they'd have to say that the God of Israel had been defeated by the God of Babylonia, which obviously leads to problems because if your God has been defeated by another God, shouldn't you be worshiping the more powerful God? That's what makes sense. And so as they were debating these ideas, uh, it seems that what they came up with was a monotheism, which believed in one God. And therefore they had to come up with alternate explanations for evil. And, So one of those could have been this character of the devil. The only problem with that is he doesn't appear in any kind of developed form for another several centuries after that. So it's not really until about the first century of the common era that we start to get – fully-fledged sorts of pictures of the devil. And even then, I would say fully-fledged is maybe a bit of an exaggeration because it takes some time for this character to actually become what we recognize as the devil today. And part of the problem is that when when we read ancient texts, we read them through our current lenses. So we've had 2,000 plus years of looking at the Bible or the Hebrew Bible especially, and we do it through the lenses that we've uh, we've received. And there's nobody in our day and age who uh, in the Western world who hasn't heard of the devil. We know who the devil is. And so we read back the material in the Bible. And we think, if we see the word Satan. We say, ah, oh, the devil, because we already know that. But for ancient people, it may have been <clears throat> a very different world uh, view. They didn't have that simple equation that we do because these characters were developing over time. So the exile was one of those things that happened. But uh it wasn't the the definitive thing. I, my my sense of it is that probably more than anything else, it was the um, the conquest of, of the the Hellenistic Empire under Alexander, followed by the situation with the um, with the uh, Seleucid Empire, uh, which was very bad for the people who lived in Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. These kinds of Evil empires that had taken over. I think that's more where you start to find the necessity of getting a di- diabolical or, or, or a devil figure to develop because they're trying to explain the, the bad things that are happening. And even though the exile was bad, uh, the situation under Antiochus uh, Epiphanes was even worse. So uh, they had to uh, had to come up with some explanation for evil, and this. These ideas have been uh, kicking around for so long start to coalesce, I think, at the time period when uh, the foreign empires, particularly the the Hellenistic Empire and then the Roman Empire, uh, took control. And these sorts of things uh, led to the need for explanations. And the devil was one of those explanations.
1: I guess what I was... Getting at with the uh, with the exile being a pivotal point was the uh, when when Persia defeated uh, the Babylonians there was would you say there was a definite influence of Zoro, Zoroastrianism that uh, oh yeah absolutely that,
0: that, yeah. You, that, that influenced
1: yeah. Ju- Judaism in which you get this uh, radical dualism between the forces of good and evil.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. In that aspect, certainly that the case, uh, the exile, not so much for the, from the Babylonian point of view, but maybe when the uh, the Jews were allowed to, to go back home under uh, Cyrus, the uh, Persian emperor, there is definitely uh, Zoroastrian influence. And Zoroastrianism is the, I believe, uh, still considered the oldest continuously practiced religion in the world um, <clears throat> because other religions have had breaks or had uh, gaps in them. Zoroastrianism, we're not quite sure when it began, but it was an ancient uh, Persian or Iranian religion, which was heavily dualistic. And they, instead of believing in one god, they believed in a god and a very strong anti-god. And that character, uh, who goes by various names, Amaran, uh, uh, Aramon is one of them, uh, Angra Manyu is another, uh, he becomes sort of a character who... Jump starts the idea, I think, along with these ideas of the accuser who's been floating around for a while, uh, this Satan figure, this character uh, of the anti-god gives them a basis for developing a, a, a more fully-fledged devil character. So during that time period when there, there's Persian influence, that definitely is part of the picture, yes. Uh, I don't know it was so much the exile itself other than the exile put a lot of, uh, a lot of Jewish people in Babylon, which is of course right next to uh, Persia in the ancient world. So they're starting to get Persian influence there. but the, uh, it took a while even after that happened for this character to develop. So we start getting uh, strong pictures of, of this kind of adversary character of the devil uh, a bit later than the, uh, the Persian period, but the, the Persians definitely had a hand in it. yeah, absolutely
1: so i guess fast forwarding a little bit to the first century uh you do get a mention of uh demons in the uh in the new testament especially in the gospels uh what did people the first century think of demons like what was their like what what was their function
0: uh it's a good question the demon in the new testament that we the demons we hear about are those that possess people and so they essentially are uh well, when I was in school, we were taught, you know, it's basically a way of referring to epilepsy, because if you read some of the accounts, the symptoms that the people have are somewhat like epilepsy. Uh, and it could very well be that uh, in some of the gospel cases that we're dealing with something like epilepsy, uh, and they're trying to explain it, and they don't have any way to do that. And so demons are one way to explain it. Uh, but demons inhabit people, they make them act out of character, they make them uh, do uh Unusual things they make them ill, uh, so they're a form of illness, but they're not illness itself because standard illness was recognized. Uh, they they were not unsophisticated or uh, you know uh, rubes or anything like that. People at that time period did recognize illness and they had ways of treating it, but when it was something that was really extraordinary, it could be understood as a demon. Now part of this comes about because of the <clears throat> the point of view of uh, demons in the Greek world, which was. The, uh, still a very strong influence at this time, because in Greek, uh, the word demon, where we get our word demon, uh, is actually a being that's neither good nor bad, per se. It's kind of like a an avatar, as we might think of it today, or a second self, or a spiritual guide, or something like that. A part of you that um, that isn't in your body, but it, it's uh, something that influences you for good or, or evil. Um, and so, those were the idea that was the idea behind demons, but in the time by the time we get to the New Testament, because we've got a monotheistic religion now, anything that is supernatural that's not good, such as an angel uh, or God, anything that fits in that realm that's evil has to be understood somehow. And we've got this convenient word of this being that's outside of you uh, as a demon, and so they adopt that word to refer to evil creatures that are not God. So that's, I think, what uh, what happens in that particular point in time, because the cultural context um, in the Greek world, they're perfectly happy with having demons without being having them be evil. And so the thing is that this has to develop over time, and it fits into a larger picture. So we get demons starting to develop. We've got this character of a devil also starting to develop. The funny thing is, they don't really get brought together until very, very late in the New Testament, and it's not in any kind of systematic way. As a matter of fact, they really only get brought together in the book of Revelation, which is probably the latest book in the New Testament. And so we start to get them seen together, the the devil and his minions or the devil and his angels. Uh, Later on, of course, after the biblical period itself, we start to get a fully developed kind of demonology. But in the the biblical world, it's still pretty rough. And so at this stage, we've got demons who inhabit uh, or possess people, and we've got this evil spirit uh, that is kind of an enemy to God, and they will eventually be brought together into a sort of a a divine uh, ecology, if you will, of evil.
1: So we know from a couple of books in the Old Testament that there were these extra canonical books that were heavily influ- were heavily influential on the people of the first century. I'm speaking, in particularly to, to the Book of Enoch. Uh, what con- what con- what contributions did these texts have in the development of uh, demons?
0: Uh, Yeah, they certainly had some influence. And so uh, the the way that we tend to think about it, again, this is looking at the past through our, our present day lenses. We tend to look at it in terms of biblical books and extra biblical books. Books like Enoch or uh, First Enoch, technically, or uh, Jubilees, or even some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are non-biblical, we look at those books and say, ah, they must have influenced what became the primary narrative, which is to say, the biblical narrative. But what we really actually have uh, in in that world is a lot of different texts and a lot of different ideas that are floating around at the same time, and those ideas influenced each other quite dramatically. Uh, We can't say for sure when they came together into any single form, because we don't have a a history that actually gives us that information. But what we do get in the books like Enoch and uh, and Jubilees are references to these various divine beings. they have that story of the fallen angels that really is developed very highly in uh in first enoch so you get the story spelled out and the demons or the fallen angels whatever you want to call them have names uh and they uh they have stories backstories and their interaction with people is spelled out very uh very clearly and their offspring see the story it seems to be based on uh, just four verses in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 6, where we have this very brief reference to the sons of God seeing the daughters of human beings, the daughters of men. They were beautiful, and they took them for wives. And then it says after that, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, it doesn't relate those two things together necessarily, although clearly it seems like they might have something to do with each other. Uh, And this idea seems to have caught on. So in books like Enoch, uh, we get a fully developed story behind that of these demons, or these not demons, the sons of God. These angelic characters seeing the women coming down, marrying them, and their their offspring are giants. And in some of the developments out of this, the giants become demons when they die. Uh, in other places, the offspring are demons. So there's a lot of different ideas at play here because keep in mind that there's not any one answer to the question of where demons or uh, or evil comes from. And so there's a lot of ideas that sort of are playing in these uh, extra-canonical books, these extra-biblical books, that influence the ideas that become mainstream Christianity eventually. But At this point in time, there's still just, I'd say, uh, think of it as more of a a sea of ideas that are washing around, and they haven't coalesced into anything just yet. Um, There are some ideas that are starting to, to, to develop, and they will develop over time. But at this point in time, we've got lots of different influences playing into what will later become a kind of a standard demonology.
1: So I guess going going ahead to talk about this standard demonology. Uh, when did these views start to harden, I guess in a sense uh, in which, in which century when you when, when you start to get uh, people writing uh, these elaborate de- demonologies?
0: Yeah, that's a, a good question, and something that I think everybody wishes we had more information on, because you have uh, the way that historians divide time periods. You have the uh, what's sometimes called the biblical period that's very Western-centric, very Christo-centric as well. But you have uh, this idea of after the Bible, there's this period of time which— historians generally call late antiquity. Uh, And it's in this period that you have the rabbinic movement developing, and uh, obviously in Judaism, demons start to be discussed a bit more fully then. In the uh, Christian world, it's usually called the patristic period. That's a very patriarchal term, but the church fathers, the early church writers who are writing, and they're also dealing with this question. But nobody really does anything systematic with it Mm -hmm. until quite a bit later. uh, Later in and more in the t- a long time of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, in the Middle Ages, when you start to get uh, scholastics, uh, these uh, Catholic scholars who are trying to make sense. And uh, one of the things that Aquinas did was to try to systematize all this kind of disparate material that was out there and in in the sense, gave it started to give birth to what we call systematic theology today, uh, trying to make sense of all of this stuff, and that's when you start to get these elaborate demonologies, where you get names of demons, their their uh, functions. Some of that sort of thing existed before, not in any kind of comprehensive way. The Testament of Solomon, uh, for example, uh, is a, uh, a book that dates probably about the first century or thereabouts, and it has demons, names the demons, and sort of has their functions, but you know, it's not in any kind of way comprehensive. So the idea really is much more of a medieval one, that you can actually give a kind of comprehensive account of demons, of who they are and what they're doing and how they relate to God. And on the other side of the spectrum, we've got the orders of angels uh, that also develop around the same time. The same scholars are working on this, trying to figure out the continuity from human beings – up to god and all these beings in between uh, how do the how do they fit into some sort of scale and then humans maybe in the middle and then after them you've got demons working your way all the way down to the devil and so you've got this huge scale of of beings how does it all fit together into a system that's something we don't have from the ancient world it's very much a medieval idea and in the book i kind of jump from the middle ages up to modernity and that's one of the reasons because if we tried to sort that through after that the entire book <laughs> would have been on trying to sort through the development of demons after the Middle Ages because it really starts to take on uh, its own sort of life. But in in my own sense of of it, and again, this is just my opinion, is you kind of reach the high point with people like Aquinas who are trying to systematize all of this stuff. And there's really not much more to add uh, add to it until you get modern perspectives on what demons are. Anybody who's a specialist in uh, this, this sort of thing would argue with me on that point, and I'm sure they're probably right. That there is interesting stuff going on from you know the 12th century up until the 19th century. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff going on, but demons start to take a little bit of a more of a back roll, a back seat role after after this high point. They're still there, but they're not nearly as prominent as they were earlier, and so. I think that, uh, really, if you're wanting to find some kind of systematic treatment of demons that's in trying to be comprehensive, you have to look at the Middle Ages rather than ant- antiquity or late antiquity.
1: And what were some of these works of, uh, that were made by de- demonologists? Uh, one was The Lesser Keys of Solomon, and, uh, like, what—did they just consist of uh, the, the names of the demons and their functions—
0: well, that's a good question. Uh, the those books, such as uh, Lesser Key of Solomon, uh, those are grimoires, and grimoires uh, sort of developed out of um, out of the occult movement or esoterica. Uh, they weren't part of mainstream religion at all, and they have a very difficult history to trace because. As I said, uh, we, we have in the ancient world these different ideas that are flo- floating around in a kind of a sea of, of uh, concepts that eventually coalesce. The same thing happens throughout history. We don't have any single one narrative. Historians try to draw it down to one narrative so it's, it's possible to understand it. But even after you get the systematizing that takes place with Aquinas and, and other scholastics, there are other streams of thought out there uh, that you can use demons for human benefit, uh, and this goes back again to the kind of uh, ideas that we were talking about with Solomon just a minute ago, that you've got these demons that can be made to work for you because they're more powerful than people. And so people who are involved in the esoteric aspects of religion, these would certainly have been called, in uh, using scare quotes here, heretics by uh, the Orthodox Christians. These, uh, these heretical ideas would be that you could actually Contact demons and use them for your own ser- uh, your own purposes, and so there were people out there who were trying to do that, and they would compile these grimoires that have demons. Um, if you've ever taken a look at the Lesser Key of Solomon, it's very hard to read. Uh, it's not in any way systematic in the in the the uh, the rational sort of uh, 21st century way of thinking. It is again much more a reflection of <clears throat> esoteric. <clears throat> excuse me that uh, existed at that time. So these are uh, these are occult ideas and they're intentionally obscure. So you can't read through it and just like you sit down and read through something today and make sense of it. You have to have other knowledge besides what's in the book. And so there was a community of, um, of scholars who were working in esoterica who would have been necessary to really understand this. And, but then you get people like Aleister Crowley, who in the uh, the 19th century picked these things up and start trying to build on them again in more modern ways. So these ideas don't ever quite go away, and there's not one one. St- Uh, uh, straightforward development from antiquity to modern times. You've got a lot of different ideas that are crossing each other at various points. And these these books, such as uh, The Lesser Key of Solomon, are examples of that. There are many grimoires that exist. Uh, They've not been heavily studied by scholars. Uh, I think the scholarship in esoterica is starting to take off now, but it's only been in the last few years that people have really started to show uh, a great deal of interest in it, partly because it's not really academically respectable. I mean, (laughs) this is... uh, we're talking about esoterica, right, and uh, kind of stuff that's not really academic uh, in the, the standard sense of the word. But scholars are now growing very interested in, in this sort of thing and trying to make some sense of it. So I'd say, you know, as we continue to learn more about uh, the development of the history of esoterica, we'll have a lot more that we can say about that. But I can't think that the the field is terribly developed right at the moment.
1: So I guess going back to the the names of the demons, uh, it's it's interesting that the demonologists made a certain move is that they appropriated the old so-called pagan gods and brought them into uh, the hierarchy of of demons. Um, Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. And you can see that as as early as the New Testament, they were starting to do that. Uh, Part of what's going on, and I'll let you get to the rest of your questions in just a second here, but part of what was going on is they were looking at um, the fact that other nations had gods. How do you explain those gods? Because they seem to have some sort of reality. And one way to do it was to say they're not really gods at all, but they're actually demons. That's yet another origin story for demons. But go ahead with your question.
1: So I guess fast forwarding to the, the uh, to the film part of the book, uh, you, you you cite uh, the Exorcist as the central film in which it sort of re re sparked the fascination with demons in the general public. Uh, wh- why do you think it it was this film that that, that did that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um... <laughs> it's uh, in my uh, just to kind of give myself a little uh backing here, there are many people who feel this uh, it 's uh, film scholars as well as uh, people who 've looked at the idea of demons in the modern world, all point to the exorcist as being the the kind of linchpin if you will of that demons never completely disappeared from public consciousness i mean they were there all along i mean you can see it in various places. Uh, where writers will make reference to demons every now and again, they're still there, uh, from the middle ages on, but they've taken a much more of a back back seat and nobody heard, uh, much about exorcism. It still existed, but it was done very, very rarely. Um, and it was because of one of these rare cases that's still debated by various uh, scholars of, of various sorts, uh, that, uh, Peter Bl- uh, Blatty heard about when he was a student at Georgetown University and wanted to do research on uh, that really kind of sparked his interest in uh, in exorcism and demonology. Uh, and so uh, the, as the story goes, at least according to his autobiography, what he says is he wanted to do this story and he asked for permission to to do it as a nonfiction uh report, if you will, and was denied permission by the church. And because of that, he was a good Roman Catholic. Uh, As a a response to that, he decided he would fictionalize it and make it into The Exorcist. And of course, uh, The Exorcist as a novel was an extremely uh, hot-selling novel. And I think a large part of this has to do with the time period in which it came out. But of course, the movie completely took the world by storm. Um, It was... One of those kinds of things, it was a cultural phenomenon that happened at the right time to uh, to just kind of get the public imagination and make them think that there was something about demons. I'd, I'd say that maybe one of the other reasons is that it is such a well-made movie. And I realize that there, there are many people today who think it's kind of funny. The special effects are a little bit dated. Uh, I've even read some analysts saying, you know, they take their kids to the movie so they can have a good laugh. Um, yeah, but when you uh, stop to think about the way that that movie came across, it was extremely uh, serious. It wasn't, uh, there was nothing kind of funny about it. Nothing that was kind of trying to pull the wool over your eyes or anything. It was taken as a, a very, a very de- great deal of gravitas. It was something that was, uh, you know, they had, Jesuit advisors. Some of the characters in the movie are actually Jesuit priests. Um, these were people who had a really uh, a sense that they really believed what was going on, and that sense of belief conveys itself very powerfully through the movie. So much so that I think that many people in the audiences uh, became convinced that this was real as well. And so what we start to see is prior to this exorcism was a it existed. It was a it was still used. I think the case that Blatty was working on was from the 1950s, if I remember correctly. So it had been, you know, quite a while since uh, since this kind of thing had been done. Maybe it was the 60s, but it hadn't been done very widely or popularly done. And now, all of a sudden, after The Exorcist, you start getting demands for exorcisms. People want exorcisms. They they, they believe they're demon possessed, or they believe someone they know is demon possessed. And it suddenly becomes a cultural phenomenon. So that. Anytime we think of demons, what we tend to think of is what we see in the exorcist or the knock-ons from the exorcist, because that particular view of demons doesn't really exist before then. It takes some of the New Testament, yes, takes some medieval stuff, yes, but it takes it to a completely different level. It it defines demons uh, in a way that they have not been defined before. And because of that, the interest in demons becomes widespread part of popular culture and part of the mainstream in a way that it wasn't before. And I think that there'd be very hard to overestimate how much the, the exorcist plays into our understanding of demons today, because even now as we watch more modern movies, more recent movies with demons in them, they owe their debt uh, to the exorcist to give them the whole idea to build on that, uh, to build on the idea of demons and what they are. Uh, So it essentially defined demons for, the Western world, if you will. That that one particular movie, I think, did it more than anything else.
1: One thing I forgot to mention is you link the entire book with um, a key work by Poe called The Philosophy of Composition, in which uh, he talks about, um, I guess, the most enthralling poetic topic is the death of a beautiful woman. And then lo and behold, you get in The Exorcist, the victim is a young girl. And I think most of mm-hmm. these films that you talk about, um, most of the victims are young women. Um, what do you think Poe is getting at with, uh, with uh, the victims being young women?
0: Yeah, I, I I get some criticism for this and I've seen some uh, reviews of the book that criticize that point and <clears throat> I've actually had some pre-publication uh, criticism of it, but I, I stuck with it for a very basic reason. One is that I think that Poe has a great deal of insight uh, in that essay, as as far as um, what motivates, particularly a male reader, but also could be also I think women could could get it as well. I think that he was basing this largely on his own experience uh, with his his cousin that he married, uh, and uh, and her dying young, and of course he was uh, the the article that he talks about this uh, is referring to his composition of The Raven, which is probably his best-known work. Uh, and so the idea of this sense of loss, particularly the loss of a young woman who's uh, a, a beautiful woman, as he says, but I think in our modern understanding, pretty much mean, mean young because you know we're a youth-worshipping culture. Um, and so his idea is one that seemed to make sense to me when I was looking at the demon narrative, starting with The Exorcist. So, you know, Reagan McNeil, she's a young girl. Uh, and the stories that you get after that, the other uh, exorcism movies that start to come along after this or other demon movies, the victims are generally women, not always. Um, there are some with men and some with boys. But I think one thing we can say for, for certain about those other movies is they lack the emotional resonance that something like The Exorcist has or The Exorcism of Emily Rose. These movies have very powerful stories and they circulate around or, or rotate around a young girl who is being tormented uh, outside of, uh, outside of, you know, by forces outside of her control. And I think that what's happening here on a, a very basic psychological level is that women can bear children and of course men can't uh and so a threat against young woman is a threat against humanity um and i think there's an element there that's saying when we want to make something really scary it has to threaten the young woman and i think poe understood that and so he put it in terms of you know a poem that he had written and wants to uh, make the point that the poem isn't about a young boy dying. The poem is about a young woman dying or a beautiful woman dying. And so he makes that point. And I thought he was really onto something. And as he, uh, as I started to explore the book and the ideas in the late Middle Ages and such, or in the time period when uh, demons were becoming... Uh, more uh, defined, what I started to notice is they're quite frequently associated with gender uh, and very often associated with women. Uh, So when you start getting hysterias breaking out in the late Middle Ages uh, of demonic possession, and they had these periods of time when you get these... uh, what we might call uh, mass hysteria uh, going on, particularly in convents, okay? So it was nuns who would be experiencing this and believing that they were possessed. This sort of thing doesn't happen in monasteries very much. We don't hear much about uh, bunches of monks thinking they're possessed. Yeah, demons threaten monks all the time, uh, all the way back to the beginning with Anthony of Egypt, you get uh, ideas of demons threatening males. But tormenting and mass possessing is something that's limited to Females to the nuns. And so the idea is there, I think, from the beginning that there's kind of uh, a, a gender disparity when it comes to demon, demonic uh, possession, demonic attack. And it's not to say men can't be possessed or boys can't be, uh, you know, tormented by demons. Yes, it happens. But the story really fits much better with the kind of. Uh, cultural cultural frame that we're looking at both from the, the late middle ages up until a modern period when women are more of a, um, a believable victim than, uh, than the men are, I think in some ways, I don't know why that is per se, uh, other than sort of maybe basic psychology or something like that. But I think that Poe spotted that and he was right that there was a, a kind of poignancy to having a female victim that is lacking when you've got a male victim. Think of, uh, Percy Shelley, I mean, in his death, which, you know, was very romantic, he drowns in a, a, a storm on, on a lake when his boat sinks. But you don't think of him as being the kind of person that you would have think there would be a great uh, <clears throat> resonance if he was uh, attacked by demons. You could, could I think, I'd make that association with, with Mary Shelley a lot better. I think it'd be a lot more natural to assume that, even though, again, <clears throat> uh, she doesn't write about that. But it, the idea is that if Fits the gender molds that we've grown into, or that we've only until fairly recently started to question.
1: So, out of all the films that you, uh, all the films that you've analyzed in this book, which one did you find was the most innovative in their portrayal of demons?
0: Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't think I've ever thought of that before. Um, the most innovative. Hmm. Let's see. Who does something different with demons? You know, I'm inclined to say, uh, at first thought, that it's probably going to be the Conjuring series. Uh, And not just because it's the most contemporary, but because they take demons in a somewhat different direction. Um, And each of the movies in the Conjuring universe, uh, we have. Demons that are complicated they 're not simply demons, so if you go back to the initial movie the Conjuring, I believe it was two thousand and thirteen, uh, we have a character a character who's possessed or or yeah possessed by a demon who seems also to be a ghost who seems also to be a witch, um, all three of these rolled together and it 's really kind of hard to pin down what exactly this entity is. Uh, the conjuring series of course uh, <clears throat> puts itself out there as being based on the work of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are real life uh, ghost hunters. And if you ever read any of their works or the books that they are uh, responsible for in some way, you'll notice that there are lots of demons in them, demons everywhere. And so it was one of the characteristics, I think, that they had to see uh, these evil beings, excuse me for a second, (coughs) these evil beings as being demonic. And so they... uh, I think that when these movies were made, and they're continuing to be made, uh, they are trying to look at these demons and trying to make them into something more interesting and something more than your uh, standard exorcist demon. These are are complicated demons. So I think it's probably the most innovative series that I look at in the book.
1: Do you think they're trying to meet the problems of the time in which the – the film or composition was made you know rethinking uh, yeah, what evil is i think is.
0: so i think so yeah and um part of it's cinematic i think very straightforward uh, they're trying to make something that's appealing on the big screen you've got to make a movie and of course movies are a business they've got to make money and so you've got to do something a little bit different and i think that they they do it pretty well and it stays it, It stays the course throughout the other movies in the series, uh, the the ones that feature Ed and Lorraine Warren. There's never a straightforward, just plain old garden variety demon. There's always something a little bit unusual about them. And that, I think, is uh, partially, again, uh, for visual appeal, but also because it makes for a much more complex and... um, interesting story in some ways. And so I think that's what they're they're trying to go for, is something that's a little bit outside of the, the Exorcist frame. Because really, after The Exorcist came out, most of the other uh, demon or piso- demonic possession movies that you get for the next several decades were variations on a theme. I mean, they were very similar to the exorcist in some ways. Uh, And so the conjuring universe actually starts to look at things a little bit differently, not completely. uh, So you can't recognize it, but there, these are demons that are very different than the, um, than the demons you get in, uh, in the exorcist. So in the conjuring two, which is about the Enfield poltergeist, you've got this creature that is either, and maybe it's a combination, a demon a poltergeist as well as a a garden variety ghost. these are all kind of blended together in one movie and even with the conjuring three you still got that going again these these kinds of characters that are blending uh they're not exactly demons as we understand them although the conjuring three uh the devil made me do it as close as you get to your standard garden variety demon i think uh of any of them but it's it's not quite that either because it has to be conjured by uh, a satanic society and so it's really um something a little bit different than standard demon but it's the closest of the three so far.
1: So, thank you, Steve, for talking about your this fascinating book. Uh, it's called "Nightmares with the Bible: The Good Book and Cinematic Demons." But before we go, we usually like to ask our guests uh, what are they working on.
0: Ah, my well, that's good. Uh, good question too. I, as I said earlier on, I work on several books at one time. I don't ever. Uh, have just one project going, but currently I've got a, a book that's single focused on the movie uh, *The Wicker Man*, which is a, a horror movie based on uh, paganism and uh, and the dangers of paganism, if you will. Uh, so that's probably the one's the farthest along, and uh, so that's probably the next one that will come out.
1: So thank you for your uh, thank you for your time, and we'll just end the interview here.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having. Me.